0: Good morning. Let's go ahead and take your Bibles and let's get them open, okay? We're going to be in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. And if you need a Bible, we have a couple of our students, maybe two or three of them, I'm not sure. They're going to be walking the hall uh, the aisle real quick with uh, some Bibles in their hands. So if you need a Bible, you just go ahead and raise your hand and uh, they will get one for you. And you are welcome to keep that Bible as a gift from our church. Or you can take that with you and give it to somebody as a gift from you. Or you can take that Bible and then you can turn it back into our next step table. So uh, you guys just raise your hand let them know if you need one and they'll get one to you. And we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, If you uh, are new to the Bible... Uh, You can, that particular Bible has a table of contents in there, and you can uh, find your way to Ephesians chapter 5. That is the 10th book in the New Testament. It's one of Paul's letters uh, to the church at Ephesus, and that's where we're going to be uh, this morning. Certainly appreciate Olivia and Bryce leading us in worship this morning, and I know that uh, if you get a moment this uh, afternoon, this morning after church, be sure to uh, express your appreciation uh, to them. All right, Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're going to be. Now, Ephesians is that 10th book in the New Testament, and it was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison. It was written to the Christians in the city of Ephesus. Now, the city of Ephesus, just to kind of set the context for us here uh, this morning, the city of Ephesus was a multi-ethnic polytheistic, which would be they would worship multiple gods, It was a polytheistic city that was really hostile towards Christians, and Paul's letter to the Ephesians is really known as one of the most concise, theologically, doctrinally rich passages of scripture that we will ever read. It's filled with a lot of wisdom to live by. But the book itself is really more than just wisdom to live by, although that's a It's good, all right, to seek wisdom from that particular passage, but we need to understand the context that the book of Ephesians is written in so that we have more than just, this is just a good book to live by. Because it's more than just wisdom that we get from Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians is really a survival manual that's written to a very young church plant to help them not only survive, but to thrive in a Hostile culture that was that was hostile against Christians that was void of God, and in the middle of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, in all of this sound wisdom and all of this instruction that Paul gives to the church there, in this particular book, he writes one incredibly powerful sentence. Just one sentence. It's in two verses chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And this one sentence that we read that Paul writes really summarizes the whole book of Ephesians. And this particular sentence is really going to serve as that foundational passage for what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks as a church. So Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. This is what Paul said. Just listen carefully. Follow... God's example therefore as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God today we begin a new teaching series called home now me personally I love home it was my favorite place to be Home, for me, that was the place where I enjoyed my mama's cooking. Now, some of you have been able to benefit from my mama's cooking because of how she trained my wife to cook. Because Lisa couldn't cook worth a flip when we were first married. All right? That was one of our first fights as a married couple. Now, some of you have heard the whole spaghetti story. Okay? But that was one of our first fights. She did not know how to cook. And I was starving. And I needed sustenance. And my mama's cooking, my mama has written three cookbooks, okay? That's how good my mama can cook. So for me, going home, it was all about going home and getting my mama's cooking. Thankfully, she taught Lisa how to cook, and now Lisa is like one of the best cooks ever. So I enjoy being at home, especially now when Lisa cooks, because her meals are fantastic. But going home is that place for mama's cooking, all right? Going home was also that place where it was a place of healing, especially from those skateboard accidents that really began with the popular phrase, hey, y'all, watch this. Okay? Yep, that was me. Hey, y'all, watch this. Get at to the top of the hill, going about, I don't know how fast, but it was on a, uh, it was on a grade of about 45%. I mean, it was like a Black Diamond-type run And I'm going down on a skateboard. My skateboard starts wobbling. I get to the bottom of the hill, hit a few rocks in the pavement, and then my skateboard stops. I don't. And I keep going. Home was that place for healing. That healing of road rash, that healing of all that stuff that that I experienced on that particular injury. But I had others that took place. Home was that place for healing not only of the physical injuries, but also the broken hearts that I had when girls would break up with me. That was sad. But I always had my mama's cooking to go to to recover from those moments in my life. Home is also that place for exploration and adventure. It was that place that we would leave the house, actually leave the house and go outside, students. We would actually go outside and we would go fish for crawdads. Anybody remember that one? Going into the creek, yep. Going into the creek and we go, y'all know what crawdads are? Yes? Okay, good. Okay, we would go looking for crawdads, and then we would also have BB gun wars. We didn't have airsoft. No, we went with the full thing called BB guns. We didn't wear goggles, okay? We didn't wear safety masks or anything like that. No, it was a BB gun war. And there were kids that got shot. There were kids that had their eyes put out, literally. I promise you, there was a kid in my neighborhood that got shot with a BB right in his eye. He's got a glass eye today, all right? There was a kid that I shot. He had a BB that went right into his wrist right here, and it stuck in about an inch or so. He had to go to the hospital, get that thing taken out. It was that place where it was a place for that exploration and adventure. Paintball and airsoft was just non-existent, all right? It just was non-existent. Home was that place where we dreamed about life. Home was that place where we had epic ping-pong battles with my dad. I mean, we had a nice ping pong table upstairs, and my dad would whoop me every time to the point of I would get exasperated so much that I would slam that ping pong paddle down on the table, and then I would do it way too many times, and dad says, if you do that one more time, I'm going to leave. And then I did it one more time, and he quit, and I'm like, and I was defeated already, and I couldn't beat him, and then I finally learned how to beat my dad in ping pong. And I would work, 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 work at that moment to, to really beat him in ping pong. And now I get joy out of beating my own children when we're playing things like that. Um, anyway, Jared, we've got to get a ping pong table upstairs, so, nah. Home was that place where serious conversations that took place. Those serious conversations usually began with, son, this is going to hurt me worse than it's going to hurt you. You know what I'm saying? Home was that place where we learned about life and we learned about death. It was that place where we learned about the birds and the bees. Now, I'm going to save that conversation for later, maybe specifically with our students, but I'm not going to elaborate on that conversation right now, but let's just say that that same conversation that my dad has shared with me or actually threatened me, with I've threatened my own children with, and we've had that same talk. Home was that place where fights happened and makeups occurred. Home was that place where we had our friends over for special occasions. It was that place where we just enjoyed hanging out. Home was that place where we made mistakes and we learned from them. Home, for me, was just a really good place. It was a good, good place to land. But that's not the case for everybody. Home is not the, that's not the case for everybody. Many of us in this room have a different perspective of home because of maybe how we grew up. Home may have not been your safe place to go to. Home is likely that place it, 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 it was probably likely that place where it was, or maybe it still is. That battleground that you want to run from rather than that refuge that you want to run into. Your memories of home may be void of joy. They may be void of happiness, and they may be void of laughter. Home, your idea of home may really just kind of seem like an illusion. It's far out of reach. It's unrealistic. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about home. And as we talk about home, we're going to learn and we're going to apply some biblical truths to our marriage and to our family so that, get this, so that we win at home. So that we win at home. So, what is home? What is it? Well, home is more than just a residence. It's more than just a place where you eat and sleep. Home is that laboratory. Home is that place where ideas are exchanged. Home is that place where you learn, where you grow, where you develop. Home is a place of rest, at least it should be a place of rest. Home is that place where you live, where you love, where you laugh, and where you cry. Now, I know that some of these things may sound idealistic, but I, but I believe from a biblical basis, from a biblical principle, this is what home is designed to be. Home is that place that is the launching pad for families. It's that place where life happens. It's that place where children are brought into and then leave from. Home is that place where where marriages thrive and families grow. Ha- home is that place where meals are shared around the table with family and with friends. Home is that place where the Word of God should be upheld. Now for some in this room, this is probably going to be just maybe a tune-up. or We're going to change maybe the spark plugs in your marriage. For students, listen. The culture that you guys live in really dictates the rules of engagement in your relationships, All right? Including your parents. Your relationships with your parents, your relationships with other people, your relationships with the opposite sex. And those rules, though, are not necessarily biblical rules. They're not biblical principles, truths to live by. So later on this month... I want us to take a look at some things that I want you to consider in your relationships moving forward so that it sets you up for spiritually healthy relationships later on. And some of those things that I want us to talk about, and I want to get, I'd to i love to get your feedback from, okay, is this. Some of those things are, is it wise for you to live together before you're married? Is it wise to do that? All right? So... We're going to talk about that later on. All right. Another question that, that I have is what does the Bible say about same sex marriage? We're going to talk a little bit about that. Another one is help, my parents just don't get it. All right. We're going to talk about the whole relationship with parents. Now, where I would love to get your feedback from, all right, is maybe some questions that you guys have. Maybe if you want to write one down or just talk to me after church or just send me a message or just hit me up with some. Hey, this is something going on. I'd love to hear what you would have to say about this. What does the Bible say about this question? So I want you guys to feel free to let me know some of those questions. That's going to be like our last session, our last sermon series on this one, that last week in March. We're going to hit on that one, okay? So I really want you guys to be here as we talk through some of those things. I'd love to get your feedback on that. So maybe you are about to get married. Maybe... You're divorced, maybe you're widowed, or maybe you've never been married. I believe the two two of the biggest challenges that you'll face, if you haven't faced these already, are two things. One is loneliness, the other one is purity. Loneliness and purity, and we're going to talk about some of those things in this series as well. So let's talk about the home. Let's talk about the home and the foundation for the home. God established the family as the foundational institution of human society. It's what he he did. It's what he founded it on. He established the family, and that family is made up of people related to one another by marriage, blood, and adoption. Marriage is the beginning of the family. The beginning of the family. I, when when I'm counseling people in, pre, in premarital counseling, you know, some people think that they want to get married and then they want to have a family, and they think that children equate to having a family. Well, Listen, your family begins the moment that you get married. The moment that you consummate that marriage, that's when the family begins. The family doesn't begin when you have children. The family begins when you get married, just the two of you. And despite the 2015 Supreme Court of the United States ruling on the lifting the ban on same-sex marriage, marriage as God defines it, which that's the, that's the real definition that we, we work with as a church, marriage as God defines it is the uniting of one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime. A lifetime. That's the biblical definition of marriage. Let's put it this way. Marriage is God's unique gift to reveal the relationship between Christ and his church. In other words, if you want to write this down, we're going to have this up. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. It is a picture of of the gospel painted on human canvas to portray christ's love for the church and the church's love for christ it's a picture of the gospel the marriage relationship therefore is to model the way that god relates to his people So because both man and woman are created in the image of God, the husband and the wife have equal worth before God. The husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. In other words, he is to lead his family. He is to provide for, he is to protect, and that is his God-given responsibility. He is to be willing to lay his life down for his bride. Now the the wife is to submit herself graciously to the servant leadership of her husband, who, even as the church, is to willingly submit to the headship or to the leadership of Jesus Christ. She, that woman, being in that image of God, as is her husband, she has that God-given responsibility to respect her husband and to serve as his helper in the managing of the household and the nurturing of the next generation. It is a partnership. It is a teamwork effort. It's team-based. It's not, I do this and you do that. It's not about that. No, listen, the purpose of your marriage... The purpose of your marriage, and everybody can learn from this, okay? The purpose of your marriage is to portray Jesus' love and sacrifice. That's the purpose of our marriage. That's why God created it. That's why God established the marriage, so that we would portray Jesus' love and sacrifice. Our marriages, the marriages that we have, your marriage is to present a clear picture of the gospel. The problem is, the message of the gospel is not always clear in marriage. The message of the gospel is not always clear in marriage. marriage. David Platt said this, he said, The primary reason the gospel is not clear in marriage across our culture is that the gospel has not been clear in marriage across the church. So let's clear it up. Let's make sure that we have a clear understanding of the gospel so that when we look at our marriages, our marriages then need to be compared to the gospel and Jesus' love and his sacrifice. And does our marriage reflect that? So let's clear it up. Number one, your marriage begins with God. Your marriage begins with God. See, marriage was was God's idea. When you look at Genesis chapter 2 and verses 22, listen to this. Genesis chapter 2, the Bible says this, The Lord God made woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now, verse 24 says, That is why a man leaves his father and a woman, and a father and mother, and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and Eve, Adam and his wife, were both naked, and they felt no shame. That was God's plan. From the very beginning of time, marriage is God's idea. Now, if marriage is God's idea, y'all work with me on this. If marriage is God's idea, then who would be against God's idea? Satan, the enemy, our enemy. And if you take a look, when you you read chapter 2, what is in chapter 3 of Genesis? What do we read? We read about the fall. Man, when when God established the marriage, Satan had an all-out assault on the first marriage so that he would break it up. That was his intent. His intent was to break it up because he knew that if he could break up the marriage, then he could break up the gospel. He could break up the truth. That was his plan. So if marriage is God's idea, Satan wants to tear that up. He wants to tear that up. If Jesus came to bring life, as he says in John 10.10, and then if Jesus comes to bring life and he says, and the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, then the thief who comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy what do you think he wants to do with your marriage? He wants to destroy it. He wants to annihilate it. He wants to take you out. How does he take you out? Well, he puts things in front of you. Guys, we think visually a lot of times. You've got to be careful what you see. You've got to be careful what you put in your face. You've got to be careful with what goes into your mind. Whether if it's pornography whether if it's something that you see on the Internet, whether if it is something that you're, you're engaged in a relationship that is extramarital, those are all not just inappropriate, but they're ungodly. And they are tools that Satan wants to use to destroy your marriage. That's what he wants to do. He wants, he wants you to feel this lack of satisfaction in your own home with your own bride, and he wants to create this false sense of satisfaction over here, this excitement that's over here, and in doing so entices you in this direction so that what is established by God is now broken and torn apart. That's his plan. That's his plan. If God's desire is so that you have life and your marriage has life, then Satan's plan is to rip it apart and destroy it. Listen, there's a couple of things that you find in the Scripture where you find where it says that God hates divorce. And you also see in the Ten Commandments where God says, do not commit adultery. As I was thinking through this particular point of that marriage begins with God, I was like, God, is this why... You hate divorce. Is this why you said, do not commit adultery? And I believe it is. Listen, it, it, hatred of divorce is not person-specific. It's enemy-specific. It's enemy-specific. Enemy now, look, we all know people. We have been, uh, maybe some of us in this room, have experienced divorce personally. I don't want you to feel bad about that in what I just said, okay? I don't want you to feel guilty over that. What I want you to understand is that God's grace is far greater than anything we could ever do in this life. His grace is sufficient for your time of need. Don't ever feel like God is just judging you. Listen, every bit of God's judgment, he put it on the cross and he nailed it to the cross in the person of Jesus, all right? And there is great grace and forgiveness. If adultery is something that has been prevalent in your life, there is grace and there is forgiveness for you. But we need to go back to the fact that marriage begins with God. It's where it begins. It begins with Him. Number two, marriage does not only begin with God, but marriage is sustained by God. It's sustained by God. In Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, there's a passage of Scripture that when Lisa and I were getting started dating and we were talking we began talking about marriage and what what God was wanting us to do and and how He was leading us, there was a passage of scripture that that God put on our hearts together it 's found in Ecclesiastes chapter four verses nine through twelve I would just encourage you to make some just make a little note Ecclesiastes chapter four verses nine through twelve and in our in our bedroom, we actually have this she actually Lisa actually put this verse on our wedding invitation. And she had that framed, and, and it's a constant reminder to the both of us of this particular passage of Scripture and what it speaks to us as a, as a married couple. Listen to this. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9 through 12, the Bible says that two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity the one who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And this is really where for us, it it really, where the rubber meets the road. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Spiritually healthy marriages have three strands. Spiritually healthy marriages have three strands. There's you, there's your spouse, and there's Jesus. You see, Jesus is the common cord that makes up an uncommon marriage. He's the common cord that makes up, that creates that uncommon marriage. And if your relationship is void of that particular cord, that common cord in your life? We all know as couples and we all know as families that in this life, we will have great stressors in our lives. There are going to be things that are going to stretch us, they are going to strain us, they are going to stress us to the max. Whether if it be a a, a wayward child, maybe it's a, a breakup in a family, maybe it's Uh, finances, maybe it's uh, a, a stressor at your work and you're bringing it home. You name it, all right? There are stressors in this life and you and your husband are that cord and that cord is constantly being strained. It's a constant tension in your life. It's constant. And that third cord of Jesus is what strengthens that marriage. It's what strengthens that relationship between you and your spouse. So as you think about your marriage, as you think about where you guys are at, ask yourself that question. Is, is Jesus that common cord that makes us have an uncommon marriage? Because you can try, and you can try, and you can try, and you can try all you want to. Because marriage is tough. Marriage is one of the hardest things that you will ever go through in this life. Because you're talking about two people, both of whom are sinners, okay? Both of whom come from selfish backgrounds. Both of whom God loves dearly. Both of whom probably wake up ugly and smell in breath, okay? Okay? all right, there's nothing pretty about waking up in the mornings. There are things in our lives, okay, that put strain on the marriage. And unless there is that common cord that runs through it, we subject ourselves to great defeat and frustration. But with that common cord, There is an element of grace that runs through it so that we can love more deeply, so that we can overlook offenses, so that we can be more gracious and compassionate to our spouses. So not only does your marriage begin with God, not only is your marriage... Sustained by God, but number three, your marriage is a portrait of the love of God. Your marriage is to be a portrait of the love of God, and that's where we get to Ephesians chapter 5 and where it says to follow God's example. So, what is God's example? What is His example? What does He set? What example does God set for us so that we can walk? In the way of love. Well, God sets a lot of examples, all right? There's a lot of things about God that we can look to and we can say, man, I want to be like that. That's how I want to be. There's three things that I want us to take a look at when we're talking about following God's example so that we can win at home, okay? Three things. First of all, in Psalm 103, in chapter, in chapter 103, verses 8 through 14, Specifically, the Bible says that God does not treat us as our sins deserve. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. So, listen to this. The Lord is compassionate, He's gracious, He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, nor does he repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Man, how good would it be to apply more compassion in our marriages? How good would it be to apply more grace In our marriages? How good would it be for us to be slow to become angry rather than just quick tempered? How good would it be for the husband to be abounding in love? How good would it be that we do not harbor anger towards our spouse? How good would it be? That God, he extracts our sin? How good would it be for us that when sin happens, we overlook it? Now, don't get me wrong. This does not mean that we enable or do we condone sin and sinful behavior. That's not what we're talking about. What it means is that we employ grace and mercy in our relationships because, as the Bible says, it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's God's kindness that leads us to life change. It's God's kindness that leads us to transformation. And what our marriages and families need is more grace. Because let's face it, especially for those of us that have kids, it's not easy at home, is it? It's a battle. It's a battle. We deal with we do, we may deal with some attitudes. We may deal with inappropriate behavior. We may deal with bad decisions. Those things are inevitable. They're going to happen. And it would be very easy to pounce on our kids. And listen, this particular passage has been a passage in my life that has really, I believe, helped to temper me. Because if you could walk through our old home before we had it repaired and got it ready to sell, listen, uh, it's, it's been no secret between me and Tyler and, and other people. Tyler and I have had our knockdown drag outs. There are holes in the walls. I had to replace a door because it got kicked in, because of anger. It was not a point where we were abounding in love. It was a place where we were being aggressive because we were angry with each other. And we were dealing with each other in our anger, and that was not healthy. It's no secret. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean that we have this perfect life going on at home. No, it doesn't. No, we have our issues. We have our challenges. We have our things going on that we have to constantly work through. And for me personally, I needed to be tempered by this passage because if we have a great example in parenting, it's with God himself. And the Bible says that he does not treat us as our sins deserve and our kids do things that we want to do things to them and take them out of this world, okay? And their sin, and whatever they do, it may validate your reason for disciplining them, but God says, I don't treat you as your sins deserve. And I think we can apply that same thing in our own marriages, in our own parenting. We don't treat each other as our sins deserve. Because like a good father, he was gracious and compassionate, and he was very understanding. He understands that our plight, he understands that that we were from dust. We're mortal. We're not perfect. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Another example that God sets for us is the fact that he loves us unconditionally. Wow. Think about that for a minute. The Bible says in Ephesians 3, you can flip right back over there. Ephesians 3. In verse 17, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp. Listen. To grasp. How wide How long, how high, and how deep is the love of God? When we talk about God's love, we talk about something that is completely unconditional. Unconditional. God's love is intrinsic. In other words, it's who He is, it's not just what He does. The Bible says that God is love. It's not that God has love, although He does. God is love. And in our marriages and in our families and in how we treat one another, that is the motivation. That is what leads us to be compassionate. That is what leads us to be gracious. That is what leads us to be slow to anger and abounding in love, not harboring sin and anger and being understanding God's love is sacrificial. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God's love is contagious. I love what it says in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, that he rejoices over you with singing. Man, what a beautiful look at the love of God. He rejoices over us with singing. And, and, And then God's love is forever. His love is forever. What we see in Psalm chapter 100 and then in verse 5, His love endures forever. Love is more than just a feeling. Love is an action. Love is a verb. It is something that you do. It's not just something that you have. It's a decision that you make. It's a commitment that you have for your bride, for your husband, for your children. His love is forever. But not only does God treat, not treat us as our sins deserve, and not only does God love us unconditionally, God, get this, is constant. He's constant. He does not change. He doesn't change. When you take a look at James chapter 1, verse 17, He, he does not change like the shifting shadows the Bible says. He's always faithful. He's always there. Holiness is who God is. Purity is who God is. God's character is never in question. Never. So as we think about our marriages, as we think about our home, remember those examples that God set. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He loves us unconditionally and He is constant. But you may be saying, Golly, I can't do that. I mean, I'm, I'm a screw up compared to all that stuff. How, how in the world can I follow God's example? Because I'm not compassionate, I'm not gracious. When somebody rubs me the wrong way, The first response that I've got to do, that I want to do, is to lash out and to knock somebody's head off. Rather than abounding in love, I'm going to abound in a fight. How do you do that? How do you you stay constant? Never changing. How do you stay faithful? It's impossible, right? Yes and no. Yes and no. Yes, it's impossible to do it on your own. But no, because the Bible says, get this, in second Corinthians five, verse seventeen, that if any man be in Christ, he's a what? A new creation. What's gone? The old. What is now come, the new. And what is now new is the fact that Christ is in you and it is his love, it is his sacrifice that now empowers you to live like this and to apply the gospel in your marriage. Your marriage, the purpose of your marriage is to portray Jesus' love and sacrifice. That's the purpose of your marriage, period purpose of your life, not just marriage, purpose of your life is the same thing, to portray his love and his sacrifice.